0: Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. This morning's reading is from Mark 2, 15 to 3, 6. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. The word of the Lord.
1: Thank you. you. One popular evangelist's favorite question to ask people is this: If you were to die tonight, stand before Jesus, and he asked you why should I let you into my heaven, what would you answer? So here we are, starting with your death. Uh, I can only tell you that the message will only get more and more entertaining. But um, that's a a question that I want uh, us to think about today. If you were to die tonight, stand before Jesus and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you answer? I've asked that question to several people. What comes first to your mind? Do you think of several answers, hoping that you can maybe build a case? How much confidence do you have in the answer that you are giving? Will you just say, I'm a good person? Will you say, I've done good with my life and I've trusted in Jesus? Will you say, I've been to more worship services than I've skipped? I've tithed or gotten close. (laughs) What will you say? What is going through your mind? Today's passage addresses one of the greatest enemies to saving faith. And it is an enemy that is in this room. It is an enemy that is in every single one of our hearts. Myself included. The enemy is legalism. What is legalism? Uh, a reasonable definition uh, from Nicholas Batzig uh, says this, Legalism is, by definition, an attempt to add anything to the finished work of Christ. It is to trust in anything other than Christ that his finished work for one's standing before God. Legalism is the idea that you are saved or approved by God for something added to Christ or adding something to Christ makes you justified before him so it is a commitment to law and works in addition to the gospel to make you stand before God and receive his welcome the evangelist question above serves to expose whether or not we have legalism in our hearts was your answer Jesus alone Was your answer the finished work of Christ alone? Are you really comfortable with that answer alone? This is a serious issue. And as we will see in today's passage, legalism and God's grace have irreconcilable differences. Mark's gospel has been showing us how Jesus is Lord, Son, and Savior. He has been revealing this to us in the last several weeks by showing us that Jesus is the one who brings the kingdom of God through the preaching of the gospel. The last time we were in Mark two weeks ago, we saw that Jesus restores outsiders to his kingdom by removing their separation, sin, and shame by the gospel. This week, we continue right where we left off, and we are going to see how Jesus' gospel brings conflict to those who seek to save themselves but grace to those who trust in him alone. This passage shows Jesus' ministry receiving growing opposition, growing antagonism from a certain group of people, a people whose way of doing things, whose system of life, whose understanding of the world was being directly threatened by the invasion of grace. This development that Jesus is bringing grace into a a world of works and righteousness and law represents the conflict of the kingdom of God to the old way of the world. But more personally, this story also represents the conflict that arises between the gospel of grace and the way of legalism. This is a battle that rages in every human heart including our own, including the most doctrinally right among us. I remember having a conversation with a woman in her 80s who had a husband who had just suffered a very debilitating stroke. She had been in the church for 60 years. She had been a missionary. Her husband, likewise with her, strong Christian, Sunday school class, uh, Sunday worship, faithful in everything, gave their life to teaching and spreading the gospel. And when her husband had come down with this stroke, she said to me, "I don't know why this happened. he's such a good man. Do you see the legalism in her heart? Even though she has walked with the gospel and professed the gospel, somehow she thinks her husband, because of all that he has done or all that he has given up, is special, is deserving of something from God. And that, my friends, is legalism. And even if we have the right confession and even if we sit into the right preaching, we will struggle with it week after week. We don't want to live by grace alone. We want to live in I deserve and I earn. And Jesus' passage today shows us that it is a zero-sum fight between grace and legalism. Grace wins at the expense of legalism and legalism always advances at the cost of grace. So what is winning in your heart today? What are you resting in today? Our passage calls us to examine ourselves for legalism and call us back to resting fully in the gospel of grace. Today's passage, we are going to see three irreconcilable differences between God's grace and legalism. Let us now turn to that passage you have uh, Uh, The the text on on your handout, you also have an outline for today's message that can help you follow along. We're going to start by looking at verses 15 through 17 and see the first irreconcilable difference between God's grace and legalism, and that is this. Grace invites, but legalism isolates. Grace invites, legalism isolates. This passage picks up, like I said, right where we left off last time we we were here. And we have just seen Jesus come and call Levi, the tax collector, to be one of his disciples. We saw the scandal that that caused because a tax collector was considered the lowest of the low, the pariah of the culture, the most outcast of outcasts. He represented taking money for the occupiers from the faithful Israelites. He was a grafter and a swindler. He took as much as he could get so that he could pocket everything left over. So he was a man who defrauded, a man who lied, a man who extorted. And we saw the scandal of God's grace that Jesus comes to that outsider, that outcast, and says, follow me. Just like he said to Simon and Andrew, showing us, that Jesus comes and takes our shame from us. Now we see Levi so impressed with this show of grace and welcome that he invites Jesus to a party at his own house, at Levi's house. And who are Levi's friends? What kind of friends does an outsider and a pariah have? Other outsiders, other pariahs. He has a party with tax collectors and sinners, which is this broad category for all sorts of transgressors, all sorts of disqualified, shameful sorts of people. And he invites Jesus. And Jesus comes. Jesus comes to that party. He sits at table, he has a meal with a group of people who are tax collectors and sinners, outsiders, rebels, transgressors. He sits with them. He has a meal with them. Can you imagine what that looks like? The most righteous one who has ever walked the earth sitting with rebels and disobedient, sinful transgressors. Now the Pharisees Don't miss this. They see what is going on, and they are astounded at this breach, because righteousness and unrighteousness, those must be kept far apart. And so the Pharisees, they ask this question. They say, and if you look at verse 16, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, who's making the judgment of who's a sinner here? These are the eyes of the Pharisees. They are looking at this group of people, and they are calling this group of people sinners. And they probably are. They probably have pretty evident sins. But from the Pharisees' eyes, the most important thing that we need to recognize is they have defined this group of people as sinners, And as by by doing that, as by defining this group of people as sinners, they are also defining themselves. They are saying they are not like us, who are not sinners. They are not sinners because they stay away from sinners. They don't eat meals with sinners because to eat meals with sinners is to have guilt by association. In the culture that Jesus was in, that the Pharisees were very much imbibed into, meals were all about separation, were all about confirming your identity in the group. As uh, the theologian, biblical scholar Chilton uh, makes uh, says this, meals were principal expressions within Judaism of what constituted purity. One ate what was acceptable with those deemed acceptable. To eat in that manner could more truly be said to create a sphere of purity than merely to express such purity. You see, what is going on here is that meals were seen as a, as a way of separating, as a way of isolating yourself from sin, and thereby confirming and elevating your own righteousness, your own purity in the community. So when Jesus is there eating with sinners and tax collectors, he's undermining this fundamental rule of hospitality and socialization. This is legalism. Legalism isolates us from sinners to make ourselves look more righteous. It is a way for us to say I am a good person because I fellowship with good people. I fellowship with righteous people. I'm in the group of the righteous, not in the group of sinners and tax collectors. But notice that this legalism, which is rampant in the hearts of these Pharisees, isolates them not just from others who are sinners, but isolates them from grace. It isolates them from grace. Look at verse 17. And Jesus heard it. He said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Again, I believe Jesus is reflecting, is mirroring back the Pharisees' own self-perspective in his answer. When he says, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Who in this story has defined themselves as righteous? It is the Pharisees in this group. They have already called themselves righteous because they don't eat with sinners. The Pharisees' perspective is being exposed. They are revealing that they are justifying themselves by a sense of self-righteousness. And their sense of self-righteousness has put them where in this story? Are they sitting with Jesus? Are they enjoying a meal with Jesus? Are they experiencing Jesus' teaching and love and grace? No, they have been isolated from Jesus. They are on the other side of the wall. They are looking in. They are questioning. They are hardening their hearts. They are not experiencing the grace and fellowship of God incarnate because they have isolated themselves in their own righteousness. Their self-righteousness is is killing them. It is separating them from Jesus. Self-righteousness is kind of like carbon monoxide poisoning. Carbon monoxide is this odorless, non noticed gas that sometimes fills rooms and houses and garages. And when you are being poisoned by carbon monoxide, you are not being made aware of how sick and how close to death you are. Instead, you are getting sleepier and more contented and noodlier and more comfortable until you fall asleep, never to wake up again. You see, when we are so committed that we are righteous in ourselves, that we don't belong in the fellowship or in the grouping of sinners and tax collectors, we are inoculating ourselves and separating ourselves from being with the physician who can heal us. Jesus answers the Pharisees' opinion by saying, Well, where do doctors go? Do doctors only hang out with the healthy people? No, doctors who do their job go where the sick people are, they deal with the people who need to be healed. I am a physician for sinners. And so I go to sinners to administer to them the only medicine that can possibly rescue them from their sin, which is the gospel of grace. I come to them to give them the message of forgiveness. I come to them to call them to repentance. If I'm going to call sinners back to life, I must go to them. And so we see that God's grace invites he goes to sinners. He is with sinners to invite, to forgive, to restore. You see, grace invites sinners into the kingdom because grace, by definition, is undeserved. God has come to give the undeserving what they don't deserve. That is grace. And so, sinners are invited into the kingdom not based on how many good works they have done. They are sinners. That's their full definition. The worst of sinners are invited in because grace gives to the undeserving what they don't deserve. Forgiveness and life and fellowship with the Savior. Do we Put ourselves in that category. Matthew chapter 21 verse 31 says, it has this uh, words from Jesus being spoken to the priests of the day. Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before the priests and the self-righteous. Is that good news to you? Is that good news to you that the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners come into the kingdom before the righteous? It's not good news if you're here today convinced you don't need the grace That a tax collector and a prostitute and a sinner needs. It is only good news if you recognize I deserve nothing from God. I deserve nothing. I have done nothing that makes me special or worthy of anything. I am as undeserving of God's favor and grace as a prostitute and a tax collector. If you are there, then how beautiful is this good news? Because it says, even the wretched tax collectors and prostitutes who put their faith in Jesus are brought into the kingdom. And that means forsake your self righteousness and cling to Jesus because Jesus' grace invites sinners into the kingdom. The self righteous shut the door and never enter. Is this good news to you? Grace invites, but legalism isolates. Next, grace rejoices. But legalism regrets. We'll look at this next five verses, verses 18 to 22. Now Jesus finds himself in another conflict over the question of fasting. We're told in verse uh, uh, verse 18 that John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. They were fasting. Something was going on this particular day where many people who were uh, pious were fasting. It was a day of fasting. It probably is not uh, related to the Day of Atonement. It's probably just a day of fasting that had become common in the first century. The Pharisees had become so uh, big a fans of fasting that they fasted twice a week. And so for whatever reason, this story happens on one of these days of fasting. John's disciples were fasting, and and the Pharisees were fasting. Now fasting was an act of mourning. People fasted to grieve To mourn, to reflect their sadness. And it's typically related to sin, although it could relate to death. But it had also become, in the first century, an act of of supreme piety. Those who fasted were pious people. And so the Pharisees and the uh, disciples of John come in verse 18 and they ask this question uh, Why did, or or, or the people, I'm sorry, people came and, and said to, to them, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? What, what is the question? The question is, i.e., these righteous people, John's disciples and the Pharisees, they fast. But you and your people don't fast. The righteous fast, and, and you're not fasting. What what's going on here? What is motivating the question? See, the idea of a fast was was kind of appealing to a Pharisee because it had like a a non-limiter. If fasting makes me more pious, then I can do more fasting and become more pious. There was also a view in the first century that God's kingdom was going to come when God's people had finally reached a level of piety and holiness that allowed God to return. So their fasting was, an, uh, was a way of grieving over sin in a way to purify themselves and hasten the coming of the kingdom. All of this fasting was something akin to justification by remorsefulness. Justification by just feeling really sorry I feel sorry for my sins and the sins of my people, and perhaps after we've filled up the glass of sorriness, God's kingdom will come. Fasting it was, in a sense, trying to flip the Old Testament law, which could only judge people, could only tell you that you are in violation or you're not yet in violation. It was trying to flip this Old Testament law into a means of gaining righteousness. Well, if fasting makes me pious, I'll do more fasting, and more piety means more righteousness. Sadly, though, all that fasting could do was increase regret, was increase mourning. There's no getting out of the loop. You're just growing in regret, growing in grief, growing in mourning. We all carry regrets, do we not? We all struggle with regrets. I live by my words, and I can tell you that more nights than not, I go to bed saying, "Dude, why did I say that? I regret words I did say, words I didn't say, and I beat myself up, and I start thinking, well, how am I going to fix that? What am I going to do? Often the worst part of my week is Sunday at about 2 o'clock, where I remember all the things I said wrong in my sermon. And it tears me up. What do we do with, with our regrets? Do we double down and deny? Do we blame? Do we say, well, that regret's really more your fault than mine? Do we go about counterbalancing our regrets by trying to do something good? Well, I said something kind of rough and coarse. I'll say three compliments tomorrow. What do we do? Or do we just self-flagellate ourselves with, with self-loathing, with growing in, in regret, pain by sorriness? You see, legalism deals with regrets by answering: work harder or pay with your sorriness. Give more grief to yourself until finally it passes. Legalism goes to regret. Legalism lives in regret. But grace rejoices. Grace rejoices. Why? Because the times have changed with Jesus. That is what Jesus is wanting to say. He gives two illustrations to explain to these people why he is not fasting. He says, you don't put an unshrunk piece of cloth on a shrunk garment... And you don't put new wine in old wineskins. You put new wine in new wineskins. The, the point of these illustrations is to say, I don't fit with your old system of regret. I have come to bring the, the, the new covenant. I have come to replace the old or or, or fulfill the old and bring in the new. These Illustrations that he gives are echoing these famous words from Jeremiah chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Their sins no more. You see, Jesus is saying he is the new wine. He is the new covenant. He can't be poured back into into the old system of regret. He can only be poured into new wineskins. As uh, Bolt, the theologian uh, by the last name of Bolt, I need to put their first names on here, but I can't remember his first name. He says this, Jesus has not come to join a system whose rules and regulations could only speak of sinfulness, uncleanness, sickness, mourning, decay, and death. Jesus has not come to be absorbed by this religion of tears. He is the bridegroom, bringing the great time of last days feasting when the shroud of death is finally cast away once and for all. You see, Jesus is saying the reason we don't fast is because I am the long-awaited bridegroom of the people. I am the husband who has come back to bring the new covenant, to restore uh, this people, that they would know me as their God, that they would know my will on their hearts, that they would know forgiveness, and that I would remember their sins no more. He is the husband. Jesus is saying, my disciples can't mourn. They can't grieve. They can't live in regret in the middle of a wedding. It's a party. It's joy because the bridegroom has finally come. In him is the joy of salvation. Listen to this from Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, this is what the new covenant does. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What is being said here is that the old covenant and its sentence of death and condemnation and judgment has been done away with because Christ has fulfilled and brought in the new covenant. There is no longer a time of mourning over our sins because in, by faith alone in Christ we are forgiven. How forgiven are we? Jeremiah 31 31, I will remember their sins no more. In the beautiful sense, your sins are forgotten because Christ has so completely satisfied and removed the sentence of judgment upon you by his cross. That when God looks at you, he has no thought of your sins any longer. He only sees you as his beloved child with whom he is well pleased. With whom he offers the table to. By faith alone we are part of the wedding. Therefore this idea of regrets is is swallowed up in rejoicing. Salvation brings joy because it is a gift. Your sins are forgiven not because you have regretted them to the fullest extent. It's impossible to be as sorry for your sins as they deserve. You are forgiven by grace. You are forgiven because it is God's love to forgive you when you put your faith in Christ alone. And so you don't live in regret. You live in the rejoicing of your salvation, the rejoicing that your sins are forgiven, the rejoicing that your sins are not even remembered. Do you see the freedom that comes in Christ? Do you have this joy? Or are you continuing to punish yourself for the sins that Christ has already forgiven you for? There is legalism there, thinking that you have to add merit or punishment to satisfy Christ's punishment that he bore for you. But you don't. Christ, by his grace, has given you forgiveness. And there's no earning it. There's no deserving it. It is given by grace alone. Third, grace liberates while legalism condemns. Jesus goes and experiences two confrontations over the Sabbath in verses 2.23-3.6. through 6, 3, 6. And here we see the hostility really growing. The key word for us is in verse 24. The Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? The key word is lawful. This is an argument over what is lawful on the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath is a clear commandment from the Old Testament. It was established at creation. It's the fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments that was given at Sinai. It's a big one. It's a seriously significant commandment. It's in the top ten, right? All right, now we had a laugh. Uh, And it's a major part of Jewish life. Observing the, the the commandment of the Sabbath was a major part of being Jewish. It's a major part of Jewish identity. Violation of the Sabbath commandment had a death sentence attached to it. What, what it involved, if we go through the scriptures, is it involved uh, worship, it involved rest, and it involved abstaining from work. So the question that was going all through the religious minds of the of the century, and uh, for several hundred years before this, was, well, what is work? What is work? Because we certainly don't want to violate the Sabbath commandment, so we need to know what is work, which is a legitimate question. The Pharisees around this time had come up with about 39 additional rules that defined work. And each one of those rules were considered equal to the Sabbath commandment. So some of their rules was that reaping, was considered work. That's what the disciples were doing. They were picking grain. That's that's reaping. And also doing non-critical health care. Certainly if a person was in labor, if a baby was being born, we needed to deal with it now. But you know, if it's if it can wait till tomorrow, it doesn't need to be done today. That's work. So non-critical health care and reaping were considered prohibited based on the Pharisees' definition of what is work on the Sabbath. So we see clearly in these two stories that Jesus is violating the Pharisees' rules, which they had considered equal with the authority of Scripture. Not only is Jesus violating the Pharisees' rules, he's really not even playing the game right. He's really annoying the Pharisees. He's not saying, oops, or uh, I didn't understand that, or "Well, let's have a debate about whether that's the right understanding of the law. His approach is simply to revoke the man-made rules without debate, without question. And why does he revoke these man-made rules? What's his reasoning? It boils down to this. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the giver of the Sabbath. He knows what the Sabbath is for. He knows what what, uh, uh, abides the Sabbath and what violates the Sabbath. He calls himself, to the Pharisees, the Lord of the Sabbath. We have just gone up to the top of the scale of claiming authority on Jesus' lips. Because the Sabbath, it's God's Sabbath. And the only person who can speak authoritatively about the Sabbath and what the Sabbath means is God. And so when Jesus announces that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, he says that he speaks with the same authority as as God who gave that law. He is the giver of that law. And he is restoring it in this story by telling us that the the Sabbath was a gift of rest and restoration. Jesus in the next story takes the offensive by bringing a man in the synagogue in the middle of the Sabbath who had a withered hand And he looks at the Pharisees, and he asks this question, is it lawful, here's that question again, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Jesus wants to ask, what is lawful? You have told me what is lawful. Let me ask you, what seems lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? You see, Jesus is revealing that the law of the Sabbath was for rest and restoration, for doing good, for saving life. But look at verse 3-2. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Do you see the twistedness of these Pharisees, so committed to their legalism that all they want is to see Jesus break their law so that they can accuse him. They are not interested in seeing a withered man's hand being healed. They are not interested in seeing the authority of this man, Jesus, being able to speak, stretch out your hand, And see a perfect healing. Those things are not interesting to them. The question of whether he breaks the law. Is all they care about. They are so twisted into their legalism. That they want him to do a miracle. Simply so they can condemn him for breaking their rules. But the twistedness does not escape notice. Because they are not just acting out to condemn Jesus, in their hard-heartedness, they are condemning themselves for what are they doing on the Sabbath? They are planning to kill, which must be as opposed to the Sabbath law as there can be. Verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. You see, legalism condemns legalism sentences and calls people rule breaker what do we do when our rules are broken let's just take the simple example of driving in our car what happens in your heart when somebody's in the car in front of you does something stupid what's your heart leap to idiot get that guy off the road. I wish there was a cop here. What does your heart do when you do the same stupid thing minutes later? Back off. <laughs> Leave me alone. You see, do we follow our own rules if we are going to be legalists and judge others, then we must recognize that we are judging ourselves. And so legalism condemns others. But worst of all, we must understand this, legalism, if that is how we are living, will condemn us. What does Jesus tell us in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 7, 2, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Do you understand what that means? Every person that you have called idiot, every person that you have called fool, every person that you have called you broke the rules, that will be what the Lord holds in front of you and puts your life against. He won't even need to go to the Bible. He just needs to to look at how you treat other drivers on the road to say you were judged justly by your own words. You see, legalism can only condemn. And ultimately, legalism is going to condemn us because as Jesus says, if what you want to do in this world is judge people, then by that same rule, I will judge you. And who will possibly survive their own judgment? But grace liberates Jesus, knowing what's in their hearts, knowing what is in their plan, knowing that doing this miracle is going to put him on an inevitable confrontation where his own life will be on the line, still brings this man forward and tells him, stretch out your hand. And the man's hand is healed. He is made well. Jesus Liberates the man's illness, liberates him from that disease. Jesus heals the man at the cost of his life. You see, grace liberates, grace removes condemnation, grace gives life. As we read earlier. who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You see, Jesus liberates at the cost of his own life. He removes our condemnation by taking our condemnation from us. And we receive that not by deserving it, not because we have have come close, but because God in his grace has given Jesus Christ in our place. Legalism lurks in all of our hearts. We want to be right, and legalism gives us what we want in the short term. But the legalist does not reap the righteousness he pursues. Instead, the legalist grows in isolation, regret, and self-condemnation. But there is a remedy for our legalism. We must turn to the only thing that can kill that legalism. We must turn to the grace of the gospel. The gospel offers us the grace to overcome our isolation and invite us into the kingdom. The gospel offers us the grace to put away our regrets and live in the abundance of God's forgiveness. The gospel offers us the grace to soften our hearts of condemnation and make us merciful and kind to others as he has been to us. How? By receiving by grace what God has given to us in his son Jesus. Jesus invites every sort of sinner, even the self-righteous, to be at the feast of his eternal kingdom. Jesus came as the bridegroom who suffers on the cross that all our regrets might not separate us from the joy of heaven. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath that took our condemnation so that we might rest in him forever. Let us reject the legalism that so easily clings to our hearts and trust in his grace alone. If the evangelist were to ask you, why should Jesus let you into your heaven, into my heaven, what would you say? Forsake legalism. Cling to Christ alone and his grace alone, and you will be invited and welcomed home. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 1030 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.